Teens is proud to present the WHS Healthy Shaft Speaker Series. This week, Dr. Lucy Underwood from UnderwoodCounseling.net shares understanding depression in the absence of death. Now that y'all are all here, I'm going to go ahead and just jump right on in. Uh, for those who know me um, or don't know me, I am Christy Wadehofer. I am one of the two student support counselors over on the high school campus, and we put on this speaker series for you. We have been really kind of looking to add in different topics here in these last couple of weeks that have felt applicable given these unprecedented times, um, and that is definitely where Dr. Underwood is coming into play for us. Um, before I turn it kind of over to her, I did just want to say we've got one more speaker series next week, um, kind of just to talk about how to launch into summer in a safe and healthy way with the things around us, um, kind of using outside in nature in a safe way. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Underwood. Again, we are really grateful to have her. Um, a quick little thing about that, she is so kind to give her time to us. She's actually not even in the Austin area right now. She um, kind of responds to a call that I put out about looking for different speakers for our topics um, and she she volunteered herself and her time very kindly um, so we're really appreciative to have her for all the way from McKinney Texas so without further ado I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Underwood well good morning everyone and thank you so much for having me uh, today it's such a, a pleasure to be able to bring um, this topic to you, especially right now, since we, I think a lot of people can relate to the experience of grief and maybe um, how that could actually have transitioned into uh, some depression. And we're going to talk about that because uh, there's a myth sometimes that grief in, is only the result of death. And I think we have to remind ourselves um, that it can come from a lot of different types of loss. And um, sometimes that loss is really difficult to resolve. And therefore, if it uh, persists, then we start looking into more clinical issues of concern um, that are often related to depression. Um, so I am Dr. Lucy Underwood. I have a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Memphis. Um, I'm not a Texan, um, but I married one. So I've lived in the DFW Metroplex now for close to 12 years. Um, I've been in the field for 26 years, work, working largely in psychiatric facilities, um, directing uh, different programs, including school programs uh, in North Mississippi. And um, in the last six years, I decided to step out of that arena and start my own private practice. We work with a lot of trauma and anxiety and depression types of issues. And so that's what I do primarily now. Um, today, you know, we're going to talk about a number of different things. Um, we're going to accurately define uh, grief, bereavement, and depression. Um, we're going to go into a little bit more detail about uh, what people experience in grief and sort of the controversial topic of stages of grief. Um, we're then going to talk about bereavement, you know, how is that different uh, from grief? How is that different from depression? Um, when does it transition? It's kind of a gray area sometimes and um, people aren't always sure how to use the language. And then we're going to talk uh, more about depression. 
Um, and, and we're gonna spend a little bit more time on that. Um, also followed by treatment, okay? And uh, treatment concerns and how to make progress, okay? There also is, a, I think, um, a myth in that area of treatment um, that I'll highlight when we get there. And uh, then I wanna open it up and allow for questions and answers. So again, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Bear with me as uh, we're using this technology. Um, and so we'll get started. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit of some definitions, okay? Grief, okay? Um, We've heard this word for a long time. We talk about it in relation to, you know, someone passing away, uh, a person is experiencing a period of grief. Um, I started to look up a number of different pictures, but I thought, well, I'll hold off on those yeah, and um, bring those back. Uh, we'll talk more about those just uh, verbally. But, you know, you can think back in readings maybe you've done, there was a mourning period after a death, okay? That is a type of grief, right? And it, it was um, kind of a cultural uh, perspective. But what we're talking about today specifically is just what is the, just the core definitions uh, and what does it look like? Grief is a natural reaction to loss. In fact, we know that everyone experiences grief in some type of way as we'll see on another slide but it is a feeling um, that is intense emotionally and physically okay it's that reaction to a loss okay and again loss is a can be defined very broadly loss could be a job loss it could be a move it could be a sudden change like what we've been going through over the last seven weeks for many of you, because so many of the young people did not return to school from spring break. So a huge loss for them. Um, and then of course, you know, what we're seeing some, you know, struggling with not having their graduation, the end of their senior year and so forth. And college being a big question mark there, okay? Grief in and of itself is not pathological. So what do I mean by pathological? It's not an illness, it's not a disease, it's, there, it's not wrong, it's not necessarily, it's not a right or wrong kind of situation. Um, it's not a diagnostic category, okay? Grief involves a process um, that has characterized by loss, change, and control. Right. So loss being the removal of something that changes or disrupts your life. And then the seeking of control to sort of stabilize or reestablish the status quo. There is a large uh, belief system that the management of grief really depends upon three areas, your personality, your circumstances related to loss and the worldview that you hold okay i'm going to go in reverse order there for a minute worldview is how you the lens that you interpret uh, the world through okay it's the lens that reflects your values and the belief system 
the attitudes that you hold. And many people can trace that back um, to their family of origin. You know, it could be influenced by culture or region that you live in. Okay. And then we look at the circumstances of the loss. Um, what did you have a choice in this loss? Was it a surprise? Was it sudden? Did you have time to prepare? Um, so when we think about circumstances as it relates to grief, um, you know, we're well known for tornadoes here in Texas, in our region, um, especially up here and in, in um, sort of the northern part. Um, but that's, that's a very fast, unexpected, you have very little time to prepare kind of circumstance. Um, if maybe sometimes you're planning a major job change, you have time to prepare for that circumstance. But if you move you know, from one state to another or one city to another, um, those circumstances could be pretty significant because you don't know the area. You're having to start over in, in many aspects of your life, both professionally, perhaps, and socially. And then another point, personality. Okay. So personality uh, has often been thought to be influenced by genetics and also by environment. Okay. How, so if it's in if it's genetic, it's sort of what's your internal constitution of your stress tolerance, your, um, your threshold uh, to manage uh, difficult situations or change. Um, and then environmentally, you know, are you a reactive person? You know, are you a planner? If, you're a, if you are a planner and then you are dealt with this you know, loss or change very suddenly, um, that's probably not going to be in alignment with your personality, okay? The most dif difficult aspect of grief is just the not knowing, okay? And I do see that with many of, of the people that I work with who go through grief, um, and if they have or experience uh, anxiety, um, that is the biggest challenge because the planning piece is soothing or the knowing piece is soothing. And so to not know can really ramp up discomfort. Okay. So grief, many of you have heard of Kubler-Ross, perhaps Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Um, she developed um, the five stages of grief in 1969 in her text on death and dying. And even when I was in graduate school, this was still the standard that we were taught, that there are five stages of grief. Okay? Um, they're universal and that everybody goes through them, but in no specific order and no specific time. And oddly enough, um, whoops, Oddly enough, we may not even experience each of those stages. So when you start hearing someone say, well, here are the stages, but you may not experience every one of them. Um, there's no specific timeline or order. 
you start to say, well, then how could this be a theory? And hence the controversy. Right. In fact, there are some other individuals who've identified um, that there are no stages. They look at it as just a, an experience or trend that a person might go through. In fact, um, it was Ruth Davis uh, Koigsberg you know, who wrote another book called The Truth About Grief, The Myth of its five stages and the new science of loss. Right? And in fact, many people today believe this is the most accurate um, understanding or predict uh, description of those stages. And the two factors that they believe um, have the, the, provide the most prediction of how well someone will do with any type of loss are personality traits, and temperament that occurred before the loss existed, right? So this researcher, she said, there just are themes or patterns, but not particular stages, no step-by-step -step ladder. Some people experience a great uh, deal of disbelief. Uh, there may also be high levels of anxiety. And then later on, with no particular time identified, there could be a second storm, okay? And during the second storm, people may feel some intensity in feelings like denial, depression, and anger, okay? So that gives a nod back to some of those um, stages identified by Kubler-Ross, but we aren't saying that you defining those really specifically. So, where do I fall? Probably somewhere in the middle, okay? I think to talk about uh, specific stages is helpful. We just don't have to define it as a step ladder kind of experience. So let me tell you a little bit more about these stages of grief. So if we go by how some people originally interpreted Cooper Ross's model. We would start with denial. I can't believe this happened. And then the anger of, I this, why did this happen? This is just not fair. That's a, you know, some great words we hear quite often. This is not fair. And then the bargaining sets in. You know, I wish you would have taken me instead. And then, you know, we see more the depression, uh, the loss of interest, the um, isolation, uh, maybe there's an increase in drinking or drug use or um, eating, um, sort of pulling away, you know, from others. And then over time, there's acceptance. This is how the model was originally thought to work. However, this is how the model really works. Right? This is the real process of grief. You see, there is no specific order. You can start anywhere in these, um, this emotional cycle. You may not experience all of them. Again, it depends upon your personality and temperament that existed prior to. So then we have this gray area. Right, so let's, we have grief, 
Grief continues on for a little bit of time. And then you might hear people say, well, that was six months ago. That was, you know, four weeks ago. Shouldn't you be over that by now? You really need to get back to work or you really need to get going again. Yeah. Bereavement is just this, this period of time. It's again, a very normal reaction to loss in humans. And we see this in every single culture in the world. Okay. And normal is such a subjective point of view. It varies by culture. Um, this is where I, you know, I considered inserting some of those rules. I'm, I'm actually from the deep south of uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And I can remember stories um, of my father talking about when someone passed away, there was this mourning period. They would sit and mourn and the ladies would dress in black for a particular period of time following. Now, my father was born in 1928. And so there was still um, some very, I guess we would say antiquated belief systems, you know, as we think about it now, but they would sit, they would and wait, they would recluse themselves from uh, their community. Um, individuals would isolate right, and not entertain people, visitors, other than immediate family. Right? There are other cultures who celebrate um, in the bereavement. They have you know, fantastic um, uh, ceremonies for those who have passed away. Right? Uh, and while I know that we're not talking exclusively about loss as it relates to death, I think this just highlights the differences across cultures. There are some who, you know, parade through the street with flowers and jubilation. You know, I believe it was the Vikings and, you know, back in the day, they would send the body out into the ocean and shoot a flaming arrow. Um, and uh, the celebration of that and sending this person on um, into the next life. Okay? There are just no rules. So that is important for you to know. There are no rules on how a person experiences loss. Um, so whether it's a death, whether it's a sudden job change, whether it's a divorce, whether it's graduation suddenly, has gone away and is not typical. There are no rules that say you have to think about it one way or the other. Okay. Um, you can make up your own rules. It's very individualized. You know, with this, you know, at West Bank, I, I didn't ask, but I, I wish I had to know kind of how are y'all celebrating? you know, are dealing with the change associated with graduations. Here in our Metroplex, we've had a variety of ideas. Some are doing drive-by graduations. It was just announced last night, one of the schools will be having graduation at the Cowboys uh, AT&T Stadium. 
um, where they can social distance because it's so large. Um, there are others who are not having a ceremony or any kind of celebration until later in the summer, but the school has gathered people up and they're doing a drive by the student's house type of celebration. Okay. Um, there was controversy around this, I noticed though. Here in my immediate suburb of McKinney, we did an adopt a senior program where uh, you could sign up, adopt a senior, and celebrate that individual. Well, a neighboring you know, community um, found that to be very inappropriate. Um, they were, that particular individual was um, not excited about celebrating this change. Um, they felt very um, robbed of the process and um, felt like this was essentially sort of highlighting, you know, the, what they were not receiving in their community. We, we worked all of that out, obviously, but so you can see this happens, uh, it's a very individualized experience and you get to decide how you want to focus and how you want to celebrate or how you would like um, to experience the loss or process the loss as we say in therapy. Okay. Prolonged bereavement is when things start getting into that area of, is this depression? Okay. So we expect bereavement to go on as long as it needs. However, there are some definitions around um, when this starts to look questionable and problematic or pathological. Okay? And so people start throwing words around like, is this major depressive disorder? Which by the way, is just a diagnostic category. Um, sort of the slang, slang language of that is, depression. Okay, those two things are the same thing. Okay. So we look at a major depressive episode as something different though than the disorder. So sometimes prolonged bereavement can include an episode and you'll see here that that would include sadness, insomnia, a poor appetite, weight loss, um, isolation, those are some of the things that are really common in that episode. Okay. But if that episode continues on, then we have to start talking about this disorder, major depressive disorder, which becomes an overwhelming experience of those feelings that I just identified. And that despair continues to last for at least two weeks or longer at a time. Okay. Um, typically, if a person's experiencing major depressive disorder as opposed to an episode, um, we will see um, a minimum of two weeks, but it may lift but reoccur. So that's one um, presentation. It may present um, for an initial two weeks and then continue on with no uh, increase. Um, in or, or reduction in de depression or increase back to sort of the status quo. Okay. 
when a person's experiencing major depressive disorder, there are several things that um, are going on, okay? They have sunk into a very deep, dark hole and feel there's no way out and no hope for things ever changing. If you're a follower of Brene Brown, who is you know, a, a well-known Texan uh, out of Houston, uh, she wrote The Daring Way, The Gifts of Imperfection, um, I Thought It Was Me, But It's Not, and several other texts. Um, she has a wonderful um, little cartoon type vignette on YouTube where they're really talking about empathy versus sympathy, but it's, it's a great illustration to this dark hole kind of concept. Yeah, and so I encourage you to look that up, but a person is literally down in the hole and they, they have a ladder, but they just can't climb it. And so the empathy piece is a person, the other individual crawls down that ladder and says, you know, I'm here and I can um, take you up this ladder. You know, I'm here with you. I can sit with you. I will go up the ladder with you. Um, you're not alone, okay? So I encourage you to look at that. There are other characteristics that are not normal, if you will, even though we said normal is subjective. Um, we did, it is not normal grief reaction. And that will tend to make us begin to think about major depressive disorder. So these things include guilt about things other than actions taken or not taken by you know, the other party. Yeah, at the time of the loss. Dr. Underwood, yes. Yes. not to interrupt, but we have a question. Um, we have someone wondering if adjustment disorder is related to dealing with grief and bereavement, and if so, how does it fit in? Oh, that's a, actually a wonderful question. Adjustment disorder typically is an ideal um, diagnostic category um, to work from when there has been grief experiences um, because you have that six month sort of time frame to help this person resolve this change, really, really adjustment to the change. And so uh, typically you have about six months from a diagnostic point of view um, to manage um, that uh, presenting issue, but you might begin to see some significant issues um, related to major depressive disorder um, on well before six months. And so at that point, you would go ahead and make that change in the diagnosis. Feel free. Mm -hmm. I think so, you know, and hopefully uh, Mr. Gibbons will go ahead and, and write back if he wants further clarification. He said okay. yes, thank you. Okay, all right, <laughs> wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, just adding to some of those other characteristics that are not quote-unquote normal or typical in the grief reaction. We mentioned um, about guilt by the other person who did not initiate the change or didn't, um, wasn't the primary person. We see thoughts um, of, you know, maybe death or thoughts of not good enough, thoughts of loss. Um, 
that I would just be better off if I had not, you know, come or made this change, um, moved to that new city, um, gotten that divorce um, kind of situation. There becomes a very dark, heavy preoccupation with feelings of worthlessness. I am just, I'm no good, you know? I don't know what I was thinking about making this move to this uh, new place. Um, I'm not gonna be successful here either. I'm gonna have to keep doing this over and over, our examples. And then we see um, significant psychomotor changes. So a person with major depressive disorder characteristically finds it so hard to just really physically and emotionally to get moving. And they, their physical appearance is slow. Um, so you might have an image in your mind of, remember Eeyore from Winnie and the Pooh? Eeyore walks with his head hung, you know, he's very slow moving, his voice, there's not a lot of inflection. Um, that's a really good image to hold. Okay. We also look at um, uncharacteristic symptoms of, uh, related to depression and not grief would be prolonged and serious functional impairment. Uh, a person just can't um, fix themselves food. Uh, they, it's, it's moving a mountain to try to uh, take a shower or wash one's hair or brush one's teeth. Okay. And in really severe cases, because major depressive disorder, which I do not go into in this presentation, is, can exist as mild, moderate, or severe. Okay. And so in really severe situations, people can actually experience hallucinations. Okay. They may hear voices that are not their own. Um, they may see things that are not there and other people say, I don't see what you're talking about. Okay. And these things can um, they can be isolated um, to when person is going to sleep or waking up in the morning. We call those hypnagogic and hypnopompic uh, hallucinations. So, so I went over many of those. That's what I just highlighted. Sorry, I didn't make that slide change. Okay, let's talk about treatment, which is one of my favorite areas, being a therapist in private practice. So, there are many different types of treatment these days, okay? Gold standard cognitive behavior therapy. But what we know now is we need more sometimes. So what is cognitive behavior therapy? Thinking, feeling, doing, okay? I think something about the situation and that thought leads me to feel a particular kind of way thus resulting in, a, in an action. Okay. I always talk with my clients about if we want to change, change how you feel, actually, we have to target what you think. And so 
parents are, you probably experienced this, many of you parents, you see your young person and you say, what were you thinking when you did this? And what kind of reaction do you get? I don't know. I just did it. Well, there's some truth to that, but I'll tell you what's really going on. Those are called automatic thoughts. Right? So a person has done that, repeated that uh, line of thinking and feeling so often that they don't even recognize they're necessarily doing it. So in therapy, we teach people to sort of back up and practice the pause a lot. You know, look at what you're thinking because then you can intervene with yourself to change the way that you feel, thus getting a different type of outcome, right? A more rational, healthy outcome. So eye, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. One of, um, it's been around since 1987. Uh, Dr. Francine Shapiro began EMDR. I am a certified EMDR therapist, trained actually there in Austin by Dr. Christy Sproles and the late uh, Carol York. Um, it can really help a person to facilitate change in thinking and feeling. It's particularly helpful when someone is sort of stuck in their process. Um, so how does EMDR work? We do use bilateral stimulation, so there's a bit of neurology involved. And the goal is to use a bilateral stimulation of eye movement or uh, tactile stimulators, and it little tappers, we call them. They buzz back and forth, alternating from hand to hand. We can teach people how to do some of this movement at home in terms of a butterfly hug or tapping on their legs. And then we now even have a video, we call it a eye movement video tracker, and um, they can follow a ball on a screen. So the process occurs by what is believed um, by doing bilateral stimulation we lower the emotion that has become heightened in the right side of the brain and by doing that we give ourselves access to left brain where our thinking is supposed to be housed and is actually supposed to be dominant but sometimes it gets overridden when using an emotional, when an emotional reaction is used to manage or cope with a situation, it gets, it overrides our thinking. And so learning happens, that one trial learning, and then we do it again. And so it gets, reinforces itself over and over until we intervene. And so EMDR is a great method to intervene. Tagging right behind EMDR is ART. Um, accelerated Resolution Therapy. By the way, both of these are two of the primary um, approaches to dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder um, in our veteran population, as well as many other types of PTSD. Um, ART was created um, back in about 2014, I believe it was, um, by Lainey Rosensway, who lives in Connecticut. She was an EMDR therapist who felt like we could do things just a little bit faster. And um, so she modified the EMDR protocol ever so slightly 
and I actually am also certified in ART and use both of those. Okay. There are experiential therapies. Um, one of my favorite is uh, equine therapy. Um, I do equine therapy here um, in McKinney um, when the weather's cooperative. <laughs> but there are several different models. Um, I follow a model called EGALA. And we are not riding horses, but we're using horses as part of the problem solving um, of the, and to help find a solution. So the beauty of working with animals, and particularly horses, is that they're very reflective. They are a mirror of what you put out there. Okay, so if I come into an arena and I need to halter a horse, and I am feeling angry over my loss or my change, and I just grab that halter and I start heading with you know some force towards that horse, he's gonna look at me and be just like, I don't have time for this. And so I am, that energy that I'm bringing is literally gonna push that horse away. And so it gives a client the opportunity to go, oh, wow, wait a minute. That's what my family, that's how my family reacted. That's how uh, my friends reacted. Um, and so they start to um, change um, their perspective and how they approach the processing of these feelings. There are many other experiential therapies as well. Um, that is the one that I'm most familiar with and um, that I actually enjoy the most. Another sort of non-pharmacological approach is time. Time heals all wounds. Uh, that's an accurate statement, um, but we don't have a, a, a cap on that. So remember in one of the first slides, we said that grief is and bereavement is a very individualized process, right? Major depressive disorder, however, we don't expect that to necessarily um, just alleviate by itself over time. There has to be some type of intervention, in my opinion. Others may differ on that. Um, and the intervention can be exclusively a therapeutic intervention. It can also include medication. And there are many uh, older research studies that do purport that the combination therapy of um, a process therapy in combination with medication really has the most efficacy. Um, that would probably be challenged more today with some of these newer approaches like EMDR and ART. Um, medication is, can be a very valuable um, component of recovery from depression, um, and especially if someone is suffering. Um, there is a point at which a person, if their depression is on the upper end of moderate and into that severe range, they are not going to be able to absorb uh, what they the skills and tools out of the therapeutic processes easily because remember depression it impacts motivation it impacts memory cognitions such as attention memory um, judgment uh, decision making 
And so that creates frustration for people. If they're spending an enormous amount of time in therapy, but they still are in the higher or more severe side of depression, um, then we need to do some medication intervention. Hallucinations in of themselves typically just, they need a little medication touch. That doesn't mean to say that people will be on that medicine forever, but it can be a good adjunctive part of treatment. And then we have the purely non-pharmacological approaches. And so exercise is one of the the best that can be used, um, especially in that mild to sort of the lower end of moderate depression. Um, in fact, I saw something in the last few months that suggested that a 20 minute walk or exercise uh, gives you a 48 hour boost in serotonin. And I'm like, who wouldn't want that, right? Test it out. I challenge you out, go test that. Um, I did, uh, three miles the other day during my lunch break um, through my neighborhood. And I mean, I felt fantastic. And that did, it lasted. So that's especially important right now when we're homebound, uh, the vast majority of us, or we're working out of our home and we don't have a lot of interaction outside of our house. It's very easy to sort of succumb to that sort of more mild depressive symptoms. Some people I'm seeing is uh, higher up on that continuum as well. Um, and then lastly, some other things to consider. You know, it's not just walking that you could do. Weight training is very effective. Uh, yoga is um, actually a wonderful approach and inserts that mindfulness um, practice and being present in your situation so you're not sort of looking too far ahead and reacting to things that have not happened yet. And then another one is acupuncture. Um, I'm a big proponent of using acupuncture and massage therapies um, to release that tension in the body. And so there's a whole Eastern philosophy around um, how um, our body works that's a little bit different from our Western medicine that I encourage you to look at. So, we're bumping up to the top of the hour here with about five minutes remaining. And I just wanna leave you with this. And then if there are any other questions, I'll be happy to answer them. As long as there is life, there is hope. And as long as there is hope, there is life. We know that hope is a, and a very important variable in recovery from depression. We used to say, uh, coin a phrase called learned helplessness. We now primarily look at learned hopelessness. When people are in a particular situation um, of loss for a prolonged amount of time, um, they begin to uh, easily uh, lose the idea that it could be any different, okay? That would be the loss of hope. Yeah. Um, so to be able to get a person out, to have a person experience some positivity in their life, to draw upon the things that have happened that are, are healthy. So you move jobs, you got a new job, let's see what's gonna happen here. How do you want that to look different? What do you want in your life? What's the strategy and the plan to get there? So, okay. I sure do appreciate this opportunity 
to present to you all. I hope this was beneficial to you and gave you a little bit of insight. An uh, hour goes by pretty fast. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested in the archive video recording of this session and any corresponding handouts or resources, please visit the WHS Healthy Shaps website at healthyshaps.weebly.com.